0: Well, what a blessing it is to be here, and uh, yes, I don't need a haircut, and how exciting to be here and be able to see uh, Hannah's baptism, that was awesome, very, very encouraged by that. I love this church family, you guys have a really great family feel, reminds me of a church that I came from, and um, have you ever thought about how important a healthy church is in your life? You ever thought about that? I mean, I would say it's the most critical thing is a healthy church. One of the things, uh, Michelle and I, we took parenting very seriously in our life. And, you know, it was kind of a, the thought of having a kid was, was really scary for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons was having kids, you're now responsible for somebody's spiritual well-being, their, their eternal destiny. I mean, that's, that, that was, from our perspective, the main thing that we had to do in life of course we wanted to teach our kids to do well in school and function but that was actually paled in significance that we would teach our kids to know who Jesus is to have a relationship with him and that was the main focus in everything that we did in our parenting that's what we thought about and one of the most exciting things for me was coming home and hanging out with my family and having my kids tell me things that they learned about God that they learned about the Bible and that they didn't learn from us. And it was so encouraging for our kids to go to a church where there were people that loved them, cared about them, taught them the word. So for our family, church, a healthy church is so important. But not just for our family, but for us, a healthy church was critical. I remember one of the, one of the men that really invested in my life and trained me and taught me a lot about ministry went through some challenges in his life, and just quit going to church. And I, I, just seeing what happened in his life, and, and he felt like the churches that he was going to, that he was attending, that they weren't helping him, that he wasn't growing, that he wasn't learning from the preaching. And I learned something. You're benefiting from the body of Christ even when you think you're not. And I remember um, just uh, driving with him, talking about just the disasters that had happened to his life that were a result of him walking away from the Lord. And I just remember sitting in the car with him and, and just saying, you know, I don't know what to say to you. Anything I would say to you is actually what you are the one who has taught me to say. And it's encouraging to see how the Lord's brought him full circle. He's plugged into church. He's doing very well, and I'm thankful for that. So this morning, the title of uh, 1 Thessalonians, the message this morning, is Marks of a Healthy Church. And this is critical, and we're not going to look at every mark of a healthy church, but we're going to pick out a few. We're going to look at a few of the main marks of a healthy church. Now, it's easy to sit back and kind of evaluate the church and say, well, is the church healthy? Does the church have these things? Do you know what the church is? Yeah, the church is not the building, right? The church isn't the organization. The church is the people. And what that means is that you are the church. So when we talk about marks of a healthy church, another way to say that is what are the marks of a healthy Christian? Because if you get a bunch of healthy Christians and you put them all in the same place, you'll have a healthy church. And so we want these things in our church, but we don't just want them in our church. We want these things in our life personally. And so the book of 1 Thessalonians is an amazing book, and it is so encouraging, and I'm so thankful for it. And it's a blessing to be able to pick out some lessons from this, this book. So here's the four marks. I'll tell, I'll tell you what they are right up front. The first mark of a healthy church is a powerful gospel message. And it's powerful, not only personally, but it's also powerful in its expression. So the gospel is something that touches us personally, but it's also something that we proclaim. Second mark of a healthy church is godly motivation. Doing the right things for the right reasons. And a godly motivation, um, the first thing is a love for God and a desire to please him. The second part of a godly motivation is a love for others, a genuine care for other people. So it's accepting the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, loving God, loving people. And the third mark is a submission to God's word, where we read it and we obey it. And submitting to God's word, ultimately, is an expression of a personal submission to God himself. And the final mark of a healthy church, it's a church that is looking forward to the return of Christ. So, I guess I'm done. <laughs> I gave you the whole sermon. Um, can we read the Bible this morning, though, too? All right. Let's, let's jump in there. First Thessalonians chapter 1. You know, another thing that we could mention when you consider a healthy church is this. Um, things are not always what they seem. When you read the book of Revelation, there's letters to churches, and one of the churches, chapter 3, verse 1, Sardis, um, God speaks to that church and he says, you have a reputation that you're alive, but really you're dead. And then there's another church, the church in Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 8, he says, I know your poverty and your tribulation, but spiritually you're rich. Sometimes we don't see and measure things correctly. We can look at something and view it as being spiritually healthy when it's not. And so this is one of the things that we see as as Paul is ministering to the Thessalonians. It was a very challenging time for him. It was actually a very challenging time for the church. So the Apostle Paul, he's traveling and he's preaching and, and God is doing amazing things and yet he's facing difficulty, and you see Satan working, Satan causing problems. When Paul preaches in Philippi, and he's traveling around, it's, he's just having a powerful ministry, and you remember there's that demon-possessed woman that just follows him around, and he casts the demon out of her, and when her masters realize that they can't make money from her, they get Paul beaten and thrown in jail. So here you see Satan motivating people by greed. The masters were greedy, and that ends up getting Paul thrown in prison. But what happens? Where he goes, the jailer gets saved. So then he leaves Philippi, and he comes to Thessalonica. And again, difficulty, trials. Let's let's read chapter 1 and just consider a powerful gospel message. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And by the way, that is the greatest need every person has, is peace in their relationship with God. It goes on in verse 2. It says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. God saves people. People need salvation, but salvation comes from God. He chooses people. He works in their life. He brings them to salvation. You remember Lydia and Philippi? It says that God opened her heart to believe the things that Paul was preaching. That's why we pray for people, because people need help. They need God's intervention in their life to come to know him. Salvation is something that is begun by God. And Paul says, I know that you have been chosen. So think about this. When you think about your life, how do you know that God has reached into your life and that he has saved you? I remember as a kid growing up in church, my mom taught good news clubs. And I used to pray to receive Christ every single Friday was when she did it. And I I was afraid I was going to go to hell. I would think about that all the time. And and I just, I wanted to be sure. And I just prayed every Friday. By the time I hit junior high, uh, for me, having fun and having friends was just way too important. And yes, I was concerned about eternity, but that was a long ways off. And I needed to have fun today. And so in junior high, I just wished I never would have been born. And the Lord ended up working in my life. He saved me my senior year of high school, and I committed my life to follow Christ. And I used to wonder, how do I know I'm really saved? I mean, how do I know that that this time when I prayed, this time when I received Christ, it's different than all those other times I prayed? And I was really kind of unsure until about a year later. And a year later, I looked at my life, and I noticed that everything about it was different. And and when I looked at the changes that had happened in my life, I knew I didn't change myself. I knew God had changed me. He had changed my desires. And my love for him, my desire to obey him, had worked its way out in my life. Look what Paul says here to the Thessalonians. He says, "'For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you.'" How does he know? Look at verse 5. "'Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake.'" Verse 6, look at this. "'And you became imitators of us and of the Lord.'" And you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we have no need to say anything First thing that you see is an internal transformation. And you see that our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction. I have a family member that is not a believer. And one of the things that that this person always asks me is he always says, Are you sure that what you believe is true? I mean, how could you really be sure? Nobody could be sure. Are you sure? And it just bewilders him that I say, I have absolutely no doubt that God is real, that I'm a sinner, that I've entered a relationship with God because of what Jesus did on the cross for me. I have no doubt. And and that's just a bewildering thing. But the Holy Spirit came into these Thessalonians' lives with full conviction and they knew that that was true. It changed the way they saw life. Do you remember when that happened in your life? What'd you do? What'd you do when that happened in your life? I know for me, one of the first things I thought about, same thing from them. for them, the word of God sounded forth from them. First thing I did is started telling everybody I know about Jesus. I shared the gospel with everybody. I remember this friend of mine was a good friend. We grew up in church together we had been living this sinful life, and I just thought, okay, my eyes have been opened, I see the truth for what it is, and I'm gonna go help him see it. And I went and hung out with my friend, and I arm wrestled him. And I was, I don't mean arm wrestle, I mean I was talking to him about the gospel and how he needed to change his life, and he needed to see God and the value of the gospel for what it was. And after that conversation, he didn't wanna hang out with me anymore. And one of the things that I realized in thinking about that is you can't make somebody else be saved. You can't change another person. You cannot argue somebody into heaven, but you can tell somebody the truth, and God can open up their heart. And the word sounded forth from these people. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also for the Greek. The gospel came powerfully in their life, and it was proclaimed. And that's the purpose of the church, is to share the gospel. It's to be a light. Paul says, I didn't have to tell anybody what happened in your life. Everybody was telling me what happened in your life. And so I want you to think about that if the purpose of the church is to proclaim the gospel that's your purpose. Have you thought about that? If you go to school somewhere, God puts you there so that people could see the gospel through through your life so that they could hear it from you. Wherever you work, God puts you there to share the gospel. Some people are like, "Hey, you know, you don't mess with your job. That's off limits." But you are there so that people will know you and so that they'll come to know Christ. It is your purpose to share the gospel everywhere you go, to be a light, to pray for open doors. One of the things that I think about with the Apostle Paul is he went places he didn't want to go. And God moved him around, but everywhere he went, he shared the gospel. And by the way, it's not just Paul. Think about Jonah. Jonah was running away from God, gets on the ship, and the sailors get saved. Think about all the people that where God moves them, they're able to proclaim the gospel. So that's the first point, a powerful gospel, internal and external. Here's a second one, is a godly motivation, a godly motivation, a desire to please the Lord. God wants our heart, and when you see the gospel and when your purpose is the gospel, and when your purpose is to live for the Lord, that is going to affect what you do and why you do it. Look at chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much, much persecution. And... He talks about why. Look at this in verse 3. For our appeal does not spring for, from error or impurity or at any attempt to deceive. So his, the, the gospel that came in word from Paul was accurate. It was true. There was no error in it. It wasn't polluted. It, didn't have, it wasn't polluted and it was not an attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul's motivation is, I want to be pleasing to the Lord. The gospel's been given to me, and I'm going to declare it the same way I received it. The gospel was not his to change. It was God's. It was delivered to him, and he needed to faithfully deliver it. Have you ever thought about sharing the gospel with people? And it's hard, and you think, if I tell them this, it's going to offend them. I remember attending a church one time, and when I went there, I noticed that it didn't look like many people in the church were paying attention, but there was one guy who came in, and he had tattoos all over himself. Uh, He obviously was a visitor and and was not used to that type of environment, and he was the only person in the room that was looking, that was, that was focused, that was paying attention to every word, and I thought about what's being preached. What, what message is being sent? And the message was basically this. Um, you're a wonderful person, God loves you, and God doesn't make junk. But there was nothing in the message that said, you're a sinner, you're lost, you are separated from God. You're headed for destruction. But the good news is that God loves you and Jesus, who is God, who became man, took on humanity. He died on the cross and if you put your faith in him, you can be forgiven, you can be saved. There was no gospel message. It was a message not to offend to be encouraging, to tell you, hey, you're a great person. But you have a person that, when God is seeking somebody, when God is drawing somebody, they feel guilty, they're, they're afraid, they're nervous. They know they have a problem, and, and they need someone to say, no, this is the truth of the gospel, and yes, you're in trouble, but there's a way out. And Paul preached this faithful gospel because his desire wasn't to please people. Um, When you think about what stops you from sharing the gospel, what stops you from telling people the truth, what is it? It's that you want to be liked. It's that saying things may cause some kind of problems. It's always selfish reasons. So as a pastor, um, I have the privilege to be called sometimes when people are struggling and they're in difficult times. I remember one time um, this this lesbian couple called our church. And this lady called and she just said, um, I need somebody to come talk to my girlfriend. She's got cancer, she's dying, and she's afraid. And she said, I just need somebody to come and tell her anything that will make her feel better. I mean, you've got to come say something that makes her feel better. And, and I told her, I said, you know, I'm willing to come. And um, God's word has hope and it's encouraging. But I can't just say something to make her feel better. I can come and I can tell her what the Bible says. And I'll do that. And if that's what you want, I'll do that. And I think that's encouraging. I think that will be helpful. But that's what I can do. And so she did. She asked me to come and, and I, I went to this this lady's house and she was laying there and she was so thin and she was in so much pain. And one of the things that I did is I just prayed, Lord, give her um, relief from pain long enough to hear what I'm telling her. And I I had written out all these things and I was really concerned about whether what I would say would be hurtful to her, whether it would be discouraging to her. I mean, she's moments from going into eternity. And I don't want to add to her suffering. And I shared the gospel with her and she prayed to receive Christ. What an incredible encouragement. And and it was amazing because she went from being afraid to not being afraid. And what an incredible privilege. But you know what? That doesn't happen when we're worried about us. That happens when we love God and when we love people. So, good motives. He's not in it for himself. He talks in chapter 2 about not wanting to be a burden. Here's the third, here's the third thing. The third mark of a healthy church is not only to be motivated pro- properly, to, to have a desire to please the Lord and genuinely love people, but look at verse 13 of chapter 2. It says this, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. When they heard God's word, they accepted it for what it really was. You ever think about that in our culture? I just, Michelle and I just went to lunch with somebody um, two days ago. And we're sitting there and, and the whole conversation was about truth. What is truth? And as we talked about this, conversation kind of went to spiritual things. And as we talked about it, he said, well, that's your truth. Ah, That's a good truth for you. Uh, I have a different truth. Well, my truth is I should stand up here on the stage. But um, he said, I have a different truth. You want to know something? God's word is true. True is something that's outside of us, it's what's objectively true. True isn't what we believe, it's not if we're sincere about something. We don't make our own truth. It's interesting because subjective truth doesn't work anywhere in life. And yet for some reason we think that when it comes to religion we can have our own truth. You know, think about that. No, nobody goes to, um, you know, you get you know, audited by the IRS and somebody's looking at it. well, you know, your truth is that I stole some money. That's not my truth. <laughs> I mean, that's not how that works, right? When, 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 we, when we do things, when you make, uh, you know, contracts, if, if, if you go to court and somebody's suing somebody, um, the judge doesn't read the contract and one guy says, well, you know, that's his truth, but I got a different truth. No, the judge says this is what it says, this is what it means, and this will be enforced. Have you ever heard people talk about the Bible and say things like, well, everybody has their own interpretation? You know, that's not true. There's one interpretation for what God's word says. God intended something when he wrote. And it's our job to figure out what did God mean when he wrote this? because he determines the meaning. It's our job to understand that meaning. We don't go to the Bible and go, well, you know, I like this part, or I want this to mean something else, or I accept this, but I don't accept that. You see, if, if God's word, if the Bible is the words of men, if it's the words of men, then, well, what is truth? If it's just the words of men, well, everybody has their own interpretation If it's just the words of men, then we can take it or leave it. But if the Bible is God's word, if he's the one that wrote it, then it is true. You see, God doesn't ever learn anything. You know, there's times that we write science books, and and then later we discover that what we thought was true isn't really true. There were other principles at work that we weren't aware of. Nothing like that ever happens with God. He knows everything. And so when he writes the Bible, it is 100% perfect. It is without error. And we know that God used people to write the Bible, but 2 Peter 1.20 and 21 says this, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. But men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. But when he was writing, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, was moving him to write exactly what God wanted him to write. Every word was perfect. You know, you've probably heard people say, you know, when the gospel writers wrote... They, they wrote about something that, man, they, they wrote about it like 30 years after it happened or 20 years later. I mean, who can remember perfectly? But what we need to remember is that it wasn't just humans writing and remembering. It was God moving them to write. You know, this is another interesting thing, too. You know, people struggle to understand parts of the Bible. But as you read through the Gospels and you listen to Jesus' conversations with the Pharisees. Do you notice, do you remember all the times that Jesus said, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? You know, he never said to the Pharisees, you know, I get that you don't understand that because the Bible's complicated. You can't really tell what it means. God was confusing when he wrote. No, no, I, I mean, I get that. I'll get anybody know? That is not how Jesus ever responded. Every time somebody got something doctrinally doctrinally wrong, Jesus blamed them. Have you not read? And see, these Thessalonians, and I think the mark of a healthy Christian and the mark of a healthy church is that we care about the Bible, we open it up, we read it, and we submit to it. Have you ever read something in the Bible that you didn't like? See, if you were to walk into a church or you were to walk into any Christian and say, do you submit to God's word? They all say yes, right? Have you ever met somebody who says, oh yeah, no, I don't submit to God's word. But here's how you know. What do you do when you read something that you don't like? Do you explain it away? Do you ignore it? Or do you submit to it? I remember um, the trauma that happened to me the first time I read the book of Job. And I don't know why it makes a difference, but when I read the book of Job and it occurred to me that God volunteered Job for this suffering, I always thought it was Satan's idea. But then I realized that God was the one that said, hey, have you seen Job? God volunteered Job for suffering. And that was troubling to me. And I realized I had a man-centered view of life. I felt like, God, you're here to help me. You're here to make my life better. And the more I obey you and the more faithful I am to you, the better things should go for me. And when I read the book of Job, I realized that God used Job for his own glory. And he allowed Job to suffer so that God could say, see my servant Job. Now, when you get to the end of the book, what you realize is Job's, Job's uh, thought at the end of the book is, before my ears had heard, but now my eyes have seen. See, we look at the book of Job and we think that God blessed him with more riches and gave him back more kids, and, and we feel like that solves the problems that Job had. But the real gift in the book of Job is that Job knew God better and that's what he wanted. That was a (laughs) sidetrack. But a mark of a healthy Christian in a healthy church is that we submit to God's Word. We study it carefully, we make sure we get it right, but then what it says, that's what we go with. Here's a fourth mark of a healthy church. Is a longing for the appearing of Christ. A longing for the appearing of Christ. Did you know that every single chapter in the book of 1st Thessalonians ends with the statement about the return of Christ? Every chapter. And um, the book of 1st Thessalonians is a book that talks about um, end times. And uh, chapter 4 verse 13 through the middle of chapter 5 is about the rapture. It's about Jesus coming back. Now when you talk about end times, people describe eschatology and end times in terms of the, of the millennium. So have you ever heard of big words, theological words, like premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial? So premillennial is in reference to the, to the, the uh, millennium, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, Premillennial says Jesus comes back before the millennium and then reigns on earth. Postmillennialism says that the earth gets really good and Jesus is reigning on the earth and then he comes back at the end, post. Amillennialism says there is no earthly reign of Christ. Jesus is reigning up in heaven, so he just comes back. So pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, and then have you heard of the pan-millennialists? They say it's all going to pan out in the end. I'm not sure which one it is. Um, A lot of people don't read the book of Revelation. They're not interested in end times. But can I tell you something that is is amazing to me? This book of 1 Thessalonians was written to a church, and in chapter 5, verse 1... It says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren. Oh, wait, that's not the right one. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware. The Apostle Paul, if you read the book of Acts, was in the Thessalonian church for three Sabbaths. Some people say it's impossible that he was only there for 21 days and all this happened, so he must have been longer. So some people say he was there for three months. But whether he was there for three weeks or three months, I think probably closer to three weeks, but whether he was there for three weeks or three months, in that period of time, he explained to them end times. That matters. That we would look forward to the return of Christ. And he talks about that in these books. Chapter 1, verse 10. Verse 9 and 10 says, or verse 10 says, To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He saved them. They were eagerly waiting. Remember as a kid, my parents told me that my grandparents were coming over. Now, this was before the days of cell phones, so we didn't really know when they were going to show up. And me and my sister went and sat in the front yard. And we were playing, and then eventually we ran out of games, and we just sat there looking at the end of the street. We were probably outside for two hours. And we were just sitting there waiting for them to come. And then finally they came around the corner, and we were so excited that my grandparents were here, we're jumping up and down on the lawn. You know, my, gra- my, my grandparents must have enjoyed pulling around the corner and seeing that. They had no idea we'd been sitting there waiting for them. See, as believers, we eagerly anticipate the return of Christ. We know he's coming back, and that does lead to living in holiness, but that's also what puts everything that happens in life in perspective. You know, think about, have you ever been hurt by somebody, frustrated. Maybe things have happened even with believers or things in church that you don't think should happen. Have you ever thought about how the return of Christ impacts how you respond to those things? See, if Jesus is coming back, this is a brother and sister in Christ that you're going to spend forever with. Whatever problems they have, When Jesus comes back, those problems are going to be fixed. And guess what? When Jesus comes back, your problems are going to be fixed. You know, we live for eternity. The Bible tells us in James that this life is a vapor. And it appears for just a little while, and then it's gone. Think about financially devastating things that can happen. In the scheme of eternity, I'm not saying those things don't matter, but in the scheme of eternity, they don't matter. Think about other kinds of travel, tra- uh, difficult things, health problems that can happen, all kinds of things, relational difficulties. In the scheme of eternity, they don't matter. Now, how, how about if you've ever been offended by somebody who's not a believer? See, the, the return of Christ puts that in perspective. What does that person need? They need to be right with God. It's not about you. It's not about your relationship with them. It's about their relationship with God, and God has put us here to help people be reconciled to God. And I think so many times we, we spend our money on the wrong things. We spend our time on the wrong things. We do the wrong things because we're not focused... And looking forward to the return of Christ. I was thinking about that um, two years ago, my dad passed away. And my dad was, um, in his life, really confident, was never afraid of anything. I remember uh, his first heart attack. My dad had so many health problems. He had heart attacks, he had strokes, and he was so optimistic. and, And he just, like, he lived so much longer than anybody thought he would. And I remember before one of his heart attacks, surgeries, he had had a heart attack. He was about to go in. And the doctors came and told our family, your dad may not live through this surgery. And his eternal destiny was what was on my mind. And so I went into the room, and I, just, I shared the gospel with him. And I said, Dad, if you die, you're going to be separated from God forever. You are a sinner. You need the sacrifice of Jesus. And the nurses were standing on the other side of the curtain. And they must have been thinking to themselves, what kind of crazy person says that to somebody who's about to go into, their, into surgery? You know what? I didn't care what the nurses thought. All I cared about was my dad's eternal destiny. You know what he told me? He said, Roger, I'm not worried about it. I know that God is going to do the right thing. And I just said, Dad, um, you're not worried, but you should be worried because the right thing is for you to be forever separated from God. And he went off into that surgery, and our family prayed, God, let him live. And then he had a stroke. And I remember um, going to the hospital, and he was just laying there. He couldn't move. And I just remember saying, Dad, blink if you know who I am. All he could do is blink. And the doctor said he would never talk again, never walk again. Well, pfft, man, that guy recovered. But he couldn't take care of himself, and my mom took him to church every week. And the pastor there was preaching the Bible, and basically the stroke erased his hard drive. And hearing the gospel week after week, my dad called me, asked me to baptize him. I had the privilege of baptizing my dad. And then two years ago, when we all knew it was the end of his life, um, one night I helped him get in bed, and all, everybody in the family standing around. And I noticed him laying in bed, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't close his eyes. We turned off the lights, and he wouldn't close his eyes. So after everybody left the room, I just got in bed with him and laid next to him. And I just said, Dad, how come you're not closing your eyes? What's going on? And he said, Roger, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that if I close my eyes, I'm not going to wake up. And I just went over the gospel message with him. And I said, Dad, do you know you're a sinner? And he goes, yeah, I know that. I said, do you know that Jesus was God, became a man, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross? And when he died on the cross, that God punished him for your sin. He goes, yeah, no, I know that's true. I said, do you believe Romans 10 that says whoever trust in the name of the Lord will not be disappointed. Do you believe that God doesn't lie? He's like, no, I believe that. I know that. And I said, dad, I hope that you'll go to sleep tonight and that when you wake up tomorrow, that I'll be able to see you again. But if you don't wake up in this life, you are going to wake up. You're going to wake up in heaven. You're going to be perfect. You're going to be in the presence of Jesus. So that's actually better, but I hope to see you tomorrow. And my dad um, relaxed, closed his eyes, went to sleep, and he did wake up the next day. (laughs) But you know what It was amazing to me? That when he was an unbeliever and shouldn't have been afraid, he wasn't. And as a believer, the thought of passing away stressed him out. But you want to know what brought him comfort? Thinking through the reality, the truth, that we're going to see Jesus again. And the truth is, we don't know if we'll live to tomorrow or if Jesus is going to come back. But we need to be people who have a life that is informed by the fact that Jesus is returning. And that should impact how we treat people, how we share the gospel, the way that we live in holiness. All the things in 1 Thessalonians motivated by the knowledge that Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back soon. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness, for giving us your word. Oh God, help us to be people who have these healthy marks. We've experienced a powerful salvation. We're proclaiming the gospel. Lord, a a people that are motivated properly. Lord, a people who are eagerly looking forward to your return. Help us to love you with all of our heart in your name. Amen.